Well, if you would, this morning I want, would like you to take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 4 and verses 7 through 12, the very same place that we were at last week, uh, verses 7 through 12. This will be part two of a two-part message. I want to make a couple of comments before I begin this morning. Number one, if you go back to the sermon notes uh, right toward the very end of the bulletin, and I I really try not to do this very often, but in this case, I just want to make sure there's no misunderstanding. There's a small mistake uh, in the sermon notes at the very top. It says next to the date, it says communion. There is no communion uh, this morning. That was last week and just wasn't taken out. I just want to make sure that anyone wasn't confused by that. Secondly, if you are visiting with us for the very first time this morning... Um, I just want to let you know that what I'm going to do this morning is unique. It's different than what I normally do. I normally take a passage of Scripture and spend the entire time that I have on that passage. But I'm going to do something a little bit different this morning, something that I introduced to the congregation last week. Uh, And so for all of us this morning, what I am going to do, I'm going to finish the exposition or our look at... Verses 7 through 12, we looked at verses 7 through 10 last week. This morning we're going to look at verses 11 and 12. And then I'm going to use this morning, uh, to me it seems like a good place in the book of Ephesians to do this, to talk about our church leadership. What is the structure of leadership here at First Baptist Church? And then after that, I'm going to make some brief introductory comments about what Pastor Chad shared earlier. The nine elders are going to do a 10-year ministry plan presentation tonight. And I think it's important that I make some introductory comments this morning to kind of set the stage for tonight. Well, let's, let me read for you again Ephesians chapter 4 and verses 7 through 12. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Ephesus, says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ." Now, last week we looked at verse 7, that God has given us, through Christ, spiritual gifts. Each one of us who know Christ as Savior have an important spiritual gift or a combination of gifts. It is not the intention in this passage for Paul to list those gifts. Those are listed elsewhere in the New Testament, but rather to say, We have those gifts that are to be used for the glory of God, for the good of others, and for the unity of the church, the unity of the church being that central theme of verses 1 through 6. And then in verses 8 through 10, we saw that Christ, 
through his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, has accomplished our salvation, and he alone has the sovereign right to give to each one of us the spiritual gifts that he chooses to give to us. That leads us to verses 11 and 12, and our first point this morning is equipping the saints. In Ephesians 4.11, Paul continues his explanation of spiritual gifts. Christ not only gives gifts to individual believers, but to the body as a whole. To each believer, he gives special gifts of divine enablement. And to the church, overall, he gives specially gifted men as leaders. In verse 11, it says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. I want you to notice two words. At the beginning of verse 11, it says, and he gave. He gave, which again emphasizes the sovereign choice and authority given to Christ because of his perfect fulfillment of the Father's will in accomplishing our salvation. He gave not only apostles and prophets, but also evangelists, shepherds, and teachers all divinely gifted by God. Now, the first two classes of gifted men are apostles and prophets. These two giftings, we could call them offices, were given for a transitional time in the unveiling, unrevealing of God's word. They were to lay the foundation of the early church and be key ministers of God's word until the New Testament, until the Bible was completed. So let me say that again. The apostles and prophets were given by God for the important transitional period for the establishment of the church and for the teaching of the early church until the Bible was complete, until the New Testament was completed. In Ephesians 2.20, we looked at this a number of weeks ago. It says that the church was built upon the foundation, don't miss this, upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So, These two offices lay the foundation of the church, receive and declare the words of God. Many of them were authors of what we now call the New Testament. And his word was confirmed through them in signs and wonders and miracles. Now we believe as a church that these two offices have ceased. There are no longer apostles. There are no longer prophets because we have the complete revelation of God in the Old and New Testaments. The apostles, the word apostle, can be used in two ways in the New Testament. Generally, an apostle is one who is on a mission from God. That's the general sense. In that sense, every believer is an apostle. But the word apostle is rarely used in that sense in the New Testament. 
Much more it is used in what we call the technical sense. It is a reference to the 12 apostles. Judas, of course, committed suicide, abandoned the faith. He was replaced by Matthias. So it is the 12, those 12, and then also the apostle Paul, who was was specially appointed by God to be an apostle to the Gentiles, having seen the resurrected Christ in his conversion experience on the road to Damascus. In order to be an apostle, you had to meet two criteria. You had to be chosen by Jesus... And you had to have seen, actually seen, the resurrected Christ. Those 12 plus Paul died and that office ceased to exist. It played a very important role, but there are not technical apostles today. The same is true with the office of prophet. The New Testament office of prophet is rarely mentioned. But like the Old Testament prophets who ceased with the coming of John the Baptist, who is considered the last of the Old Testament prophets, the New Testament prophets worked with the apostles for the laying of the foundation of the church, sometimes foretelling things, but establishing this Revealed truth before the completion of the Bible, before the completion of the word of God. Agabus is listed or is named as a prophet. Silas, in one place, is called a prophet. Many believe that Barnabas was a prophet. But we believe that that particular office, along with the office of apostle, were transitional offices that no longer Exist. That is the position, our understanding of scripture, it is our position as a church. But there are others listed, evangelists and shepherds and teachers. Who are evangelists? Well, the word evangelist obviously means one who proclaims the good news. Who somehow is especially gifted in the area of bringing people to Christ and establishing them in the faith. Now, just so you know, what exactly is the office or gifting of an evangelist has been the subject of debate and discussion for many years, so we're not going to resolve it here this morning. Some would say that it is a reference to those men who are full-time evangelists, that if kind of dotted church history. We had George Whitfield and John Wesley. We had uh, D.L. Moody. We had uh, Billy Sunday. We had, of course, Billy Graham. That men like that are evangelists. And I think that's part of it. But it's interesting, and you can check this out for yourself. You don't have to go by what I tell you. Read, study it for yourself. Many believe that the Evangelist today is a reference to missionaries who take the gospel cross-cultural. That evangelists are those who take the gospel where the gospel has never been preached before. And they lead people to Christ. They build them up in the faith. They establish New Testament churches. Appoint elders and at some point then move on to another territory. 
where the gospel has never been preached. But they are gifted by God for the equipping of God's people and the building up of the saints. The next mention is of shepherds and teachers. It is pretty universally agreed Two things. First, that shepherds and teachers are modern day pastors, are what we would call pastors today. It is also pretty much universally agreed that shepherds and teachers is actually a reference to one office, an office that is often described as pastor slash teacher. You would say Pastor Tim is a pastor teacher, Pastor Chad is a pastor teacher, Pastor Ron, Pastor Mike. They're pastor teachers. Some translations, maybe the translation you have in front of you right now, even says pastor and teacher. In fact, it's the only place in the New Testament where the word or term pastor is actually mentioned. Most of the time, shepherds or pastors are called elders or bishops or overseers. All of those, I personally believe, are interchangeable terms to refer to this one office. Shepherd is a reference to the character or the heart of the office, and teacher is a reference to the function or responsibility. They, the pastor teacher, has primary responsibility for teaching the word of God to equip the saints for work of ministry and to build up the body of Christ. Now, and this was interesting as I studied this through this week, this is not meant to be an exhaustive list. Pastor teachers aren't the only ones who equip people. In our church and in many churches, there are many gifted men who have been gifted as teachers who also equip the saints. There are women who have been gifted as teachers who teach other women and equip them for ministry and build up the body of Christ. So it is not meant to be that only the evangelists and only the pastor teachers equip the saints, but they are the primary ones. In a sense, they lead the way in doing this. And that really leads us to verse 12. The first task within God's design for evangelists and shepherd teachers is to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. So after these offices are mentioned, this is, or these two things are the first that are mentioned. You may be familiar having heard sermons on equipping the saints. For work of ministry. The word equipping here is very important. The word equipping literally means to make whole. It was in its very original form used to refer to the placing of a broken bone. Put back together, restored, so it could be made whole and could heal. The word equipping here, very important, don't miss it. As it is used in this context means to help believers mature and grow in Christ. That is the primary, not the only meaning of equipping here, but it means the evangelists, excuse me, and the pastor teachers and the other gifted teachers are to preach and teach the word of God so that we all might grow into maturity that we might grow in Christ because let me tell you folks, if you're not growing spiritually, 
If you're not passionate for Christ, you're not going to be involved in works of ministry and you're not going to be used to build up the body of Christ. The Bible is always the best commentary on the Bible. I believe Colossians 1, 27 through 29 is probably the best commentary on verses 11 and 12. We looked at this quite a bit. Colossians 1, 27 through 29 in our series last year on what it means to be a disciple. Paul, unveiling the mystery of God, the fullness of the mystery of our salvation, which came to completion in the coming of Christ. He writes to them, to the saints, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now watch twenty, verse 28. It is the key here. Him, Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. This was so important to the Apostle Paul that he says in verse 29, for this, for this, Verse 28, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. What is he working for? To present everyone mature in Christ. And as we grow in Christ, we are to come to understand that all of the saints are to be equipped for ministry. The work of the ministry, whatever it is, sharing your faith, doing visits, praying for people being involved in people's lives, being involved in any kind of ministry is the work of all of us. It isn't just the work of the pastors. The pastors play their part. But all of us do the work of ministry. We are not to be those who just sit in services, but we are to be actively involved in ministry. We are also to be involved in building up the body of Christ, encouraging one another praying for one another, bearing one another's burdens, listening to one another, caring for one another. We're going to spend more time on this in two weeks when we look at verses 13 through 16. Next week, as Pastor Chad mentioned, Bob Gillespie is coming, and so we'll look at this on the last Sunday of September. Well, I'm going to just kind of make this transition here. I don't know if it'll be a smooth one or not, but I thought... Since we're talking about leaders, evangelists, pastor teachers, let's just talk. Let me just share with you about the leadership structure at First Baptist Church. This is listed in the bulletin for you. It'll also be on the screen. But I, this is something I've taught on before, but I'll be honest with you. I don't think I teach on it enough. What is the leadership structure here at First Baptist Church. What do we believe is the biblical leadership structure? So I've got four units of church leadership decision-making at First Baptist Church. The form of church government that we have here at this church, just so you know, is called elder-led congregationalism. Elder-led congregationalism. It simply means that the elders are the spiritual leaders of the church and carefully, lovingly, and prayerfully bring issues to the church for their consideration and vote. But it is the congregation that has the final vote on major issues related to the church. Now, for full disclosure this morning, 
There are some godly people in other churches and denominations who have a different who believe the Bible teaches a different form of church government. There are those who defend vigorously good godly Christians what is known as elder rule. Elder rule is where the congregation chooses or votes on the elders, but the elders make all the decisions. In most, I don't want to say in every one, but in most Presbyterian churches and in most Reformed churches, they have a form of elder rule. However, Baptists, and since we are a Baptist church, Baptists historically have held pretty tenaciously to congregational church rule. Baptists have also held pretty tenaciously to what is known as the autonomy of the local church, that each church makes its own decisions under the authority of the word of God. Now, within that elder-led congregationalism, we have the congregation. The congregation is the ultimate authority for major decisions in the church. Now, I want to be real careful here with the term ultimate authority. I mean in the decision-making process. Folks, our ultimate authority is the word of God, not the congregation or the elders or the deacons or the missions committee. Okay, our ultimate authority is the word of God. So I'm simply using this term as a decision-making body. In Matthew chapter 18, it says, if your brother sins, go to him. And if he listens to him, you have won your brother. But if he doesn't listen to you, take one or two people with you and go to him again. If he doesn't listen to you, or he doesn't listen to them, then it says this, take it to the church. Take it to the church. It is the church that makes the decision on whether or not this brother or sister who has sinned can remain in the congregation. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says that there is this brother who is openly sinned and is openly unrepentant of his sin. It says, when you are assembled together, when you are assembled together, hand this man over to Satan. That's what it says. It is the church that makes that decision. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, evidently this man, though removed from the body, repents and then is restored. And Paul says at that point that the punishment, this is what it says, the punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. So it is the majority, it is the church that has made the decision. So the church votes on church membership and church discipline. We cannot make any changes to the constitution, the church constitution and bylaws, without the approval of the congregation. The church elects all of the office holders, the elders, the deacons, the missions committee members. Sometimes we have separate votes like we did for Pastor Mike. If you remember a while back when we we first, the congregation voted to create the position of pastor of music and technology. Then subsequently the church voted to call Pastor Mike to that position. The church votes on the church budget. It is reviewed with the church quarterly. The church budget is always made available to the congregation. The church votes on major building projects, like when we had the three-phase big building projects from 2010 to 2014. It was the church that approved those. And the church votes on missionary support when we choose to support a missionary because it's usually a significant amount of money. 
we are, Lord willing, if everything goes well, we plan in January in voting on Preston and Stephanie Nichols and Marcus and Rachel Lehman on taking them on for missionary support. It will be the congregation that makes that final decision. The next unit of leadership is the elders. At First Baptist Church, we have nine elders, biblically. We have four vocational or full-time elders who we also call pastors. We have five non-vocational elders. But the qualifications for every elder is exactly the same as found in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1. The elders play a very crucial role. These are men who must be, if I could put it this way, and I don't mean this in any way boastfully, so I'm going to try to say it as humbly as I can. These men need to be of an extraordinary spiritual nature. These are people who must have an unwavering commitment to the word of God and an unwavering commitment to the New Testament local church. Can't have people as elders who are not sure about the local church and not sure about the word of God. These are godly men. They provide shepherding care. They are the main ones who provide the spiritual shepherding care. That's part of a little bit of what we're doing tonight. The elders are kind of saying, hey, let's look into the future. Let's say what's important to this church. One of the main responsibilities of an elder is to protect the flock from false teaching. The elders need to be completely sound, biblically and theologically, and should recognize when something's not right. If you remember last year, just one small example. I shared with you about the book, The Shack, and why we couldn't recommend it as a church, that we did not think it was neither biblically nor theologically sound. And so that is an elder responsibility. The elders are to devote themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word, as the apostles did. That's why the first deacons were appointed in Acts chapter 6. They are to be the lead teachers or the primary teachers in the careful, accurate teaching of the word of God. Not all of them will be preachers, but they are to be the lead teachers in making sure we are teaching the word of God very carefully, very accurately. It's interesting in 1 Timothy chapter 7, excuse me, 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 17, it says those elders who serve well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. So it appears that for some elders their work is preaching and teaching, but for some others that isn't their primary work. Why we have vocational and non-vocational or lay Elders, So they have primary leadership for theological and doctrinal issues in the church. That is the realm of the elders. They have primary leadership for difficult and controversial issues in the church. Pray for your elders. Someone has sinned and needs to be confronted. A marriage is falling apart. Someone is criticizing the leaders of the church. Someone is causing division and conflict within the church. It's the elder's responsibility to confront and deal with those difficult issues. And the elders are the primary leaders 
who evaluate qualified church leaders for the future. Does this person, is he biblically qualified to serve in the office we're considering him for? Now, I am going over these pretty quickly this morning. This could be a months-long sermon series if I were to include all the scripture passages. It's a fascinating study, a wonderful study, but I'm just giving you an overview. The next office is that of deacons. Deacons are primarily their responsibility or their calling is explained to some extent in Acts chapter 6. We believe that those seven men chosen were the first deacons. Their qualifications are found in 1 Timothy chapter 3. In many churches, there's a misunderstanding of the office of deacon. Deacons often act as elders rather than deacons. Deacons we believe biblically are primarily ministers of mercy. They care for and assist those in the congregation who are hurting financially and physically. I encourage our deacons to be the eagle eyes of the church. Who's hurting? Who's lost their job? Who can't pay their bills? Who is struggling with some kind of illness? It is the deacons who are not to care for all of those, but to make the leadership aware and to help coordinate those who will minister to those in need. And that's why the deacons oversee and facilitate the churches or the church deacons fund. The deacons are the primary ones who develop and oversee the church budget. They do it at their meeting every month. Um, It doesn't mean they're the only ones who develop the budget. Obviously, the elders have input into the budget. Our ministry leaders have input into the budget. But they are the primary ones to develop and make sure, make sure that we are staying within the budget parameters that the congregation voted on at the annual meeting. The elders facilitate decisions for large church building and grounds projects. When our facilities manager, Daryl Painters, says, hey, we need to pave this part of the parking lot. We need a new light in the parking lot. We had a boiler breakdown. He goes to the elders with a number of bids and says, can we afford this within the approved budget? And so they work with him on that. Also, the elders, the deacons assist the elders with wisdom and discernment on difficult church issues and provide input on practical ministry needs for ongoing church ministries. Of course, of course, the elders often look to the deacons and say, here's what we're thinking, what do you guys think? In Acts chapter 7, it says deacons are to be men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit, and full of wisdom. We'd be foolish not to get their thoughts. They are key leaders in this church. Elders often will take their theological or doctrinal thoughts or decisions and say, hey, what do you guys think? Before we go to the congregation, what do you guys think? The last unit is the missions committee. The missions committee isn't a biblical office, but plays an important role in a church like ours, which places a high priority on world missions. What I have in the bulletin actually comes verbatim from our church constitution. They coordinate the entire missionary program of the church. 
They promote missions through all ministries of the church. They communicate information between missionaries, the pastoral staff, and church. They recommend an annual missions budget and any changes in missionary commitments to the deacons for presentation to the church. You see how that goes? Okay, we've approved Preston and Stephanie. Now we're going to take it to the deacons to make sure this meets the budgetary requirements. And then we're going to take it to the church. And so it all works together. And of course, the elders have been involved and consulted. But the missions committee are to be the biggest cheerleaders for world missions in our church. They do a lot of what I would call tedious work, but they do it well. This missionary has a need. This missionary has some important prayer requests. This missionary, when they come to visit us, has these needs. Let's take them to the missionary closet. And so they are those who say, hey, let's keep missions as a central part of our church body. Now, these last two statements I have at the bottom are very important. The goal of all four units is to work together as a team for the unity of the church and the glory of God. The attitude of all four units, every leader, I don't care if it's a pastor, an elder, a deacon, a missions committee member, our attitude to be one is to be one of humble submission to Christ, to the church, to all others in the leadership team. Let me tell you, forgive me, this might seem like a strong word, I'll tell you what I despise. I despise when any leader says, hey, that's my territory. Or that's my territory. Folks, this is not congregation, elders, deacons, missions committee. It it doesn't work like that. I just separate that out to help you understand that we work together. We're a team on many decisions. All of us are part of it. All of us are part of that decision-making process. It's not, this is my territory and that's your territory. So, that's how the leadership structure works here at First Baptist. You are welcome anytime, anytime to ask more questions about how this works. But I want to end just briefly this morning with talking about tonight. Tonight, all nine elders are going to present a 10-year ministry plan. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand. I don't want you to come tonight thinking we've got some big sensational plan we're going to unveil to the church. Some secret that we've been hiding and we're now going to make it known to you. Not at all. Okay, no big building project in the plans. We've gone through that. No, here's the numbers we're striving for. No, right? It's just basic concepts. Hey, what's important to us for the future? What are the things that should be important to this church in the future? We're going to look at areas like discipleship, leadership development. How should we have developed the young leaders in our church? We'll look at the future of Beacon of Hope. What are we thinking about for building and grounds? What's the future of the music ministry, the safety team, providing shepherding care? How are we going to provide proper care for the shut-ins, for the widows, for those who are in the hospital. For world missions, what are we thinking about for world missions? And youth ministry, what's what's the future of the youth ministry going to look like? Now, 
Tonight, afterwards, we're going to have a fellowship, as Pastor Chad mentioned. And this is the beginning of the process. That fellowship is the beginning of a process. We want you to ask us questions. And we want you to see that you are, fe- are free to ask any questions as time goes on. Did you think about this? How come you didn't mention this? Have you guys ever thought about this? Hey, that's what we're doing. We're going to give this presentation, allow you to ask questions, and hopefully that will set in motion all kinds of thoughts and creative ideas that you may have about the future of this church. Well, how did all this come about? I'm going to give you a little personal background here. One year ago, in fact, it was in September of 2017, I presented a personal eight-year plan to the elders and subsequently to the deacons that would end with my retirement here. So that was one year ago, so it's now a seven-year plan since we're in September of 2017. And I just want to let you know, so I'm letting you know, but I let them know, I plan to retire at the end of the year 2025. Okay? So... My tentative, or I shouldn't say tentative, my retirement date, Lord willing, if he gives me good health, you allow me to stay here, um, December 31st, 2025 is when I will retire as senior pastor here. Now, I'm 60. In 2025, I'll be 67. That just seems like a good time to do it. And you may be wondering, and some of our leaders asked, okay, Pastor Tim, how come you're announcing this so far in advance? That may seem a little weird, and in some ways I am a little weird. I just like to, (laughs) I do. You can ask my wife, she'll verify that. Um, I look, I like to plan ahead, maybe a little obsessively, but why, why announce it seven years in advance? I'm going to give you three reasons. First, and if you're over 40, I won't even need to explain this to you. That's going to fly by. It is going to go so fast it will seem like a blink of an eye. And I think it is prudent and wise for us as a church to already start thinking about and planning in that direction. Second reason, in 2025, I will have been a pastor here for 35 years. And quite honestly, it's going to be time. It'll be time to pass the baton on to someone else and let them lead. But there's a third reason, and I think this is by far the most important reason. The leaving of a senior pastor can potentially be a disruptive time for a church. I have heard so many stories of a senior pastor suddenly announcing his retirement or resignation or giving the church short notice, and then that church goes a year or two years without a senior pastor while they decide who they want and what they're going to do. And during that time, there's uncertainty. Why? Well, then we, won't, we don't want to make any big decisions because we don't know what the new senior pastor will think or what his philosophy will be. And folks, I'm saying to you, we don't have to do that. That doesn't have to be true here. You know what our goal is? Our goal is that we will have already recommended to you and voted on a new senior pastor by the time I retire, before I retire. And hopefully, for a period of time, the two of us will actually be able to work together because there's a lot of things 
that you just know in 35 years that you want to pass on to someone else. And so that's our thought. I have seen this model of choosing the senior pastor, the new senior pastor, before the existing one retires. I've seen it work in other churches and it's worked really well and I really believe it can work here. Now, just so you know, I'm not the only paid staff person who's going to be retiring in the next seven years. There are several of them. And if you want to know who they are, you need to come back tonight. (laughs) And I will tell you who else is going to be retiring in the next seven years. But all of this led to the elders saying, you know what? We don't need to just plan for Pastor Tim's retirement. We need to plan for the future of this church. What's important to us as a body of believers? What are the things that we need to be looking forward to and planning for for the future? Folks, here's the bottom line. We love you guys. The leaders of this church, and I think I speak on behalf of all of them, we love you guys, and we really care about this church. We really do. We aren't perfect as leaders. We don't always get it right. We don't. But we care. We care about this church. Many of our leaders, and many of you who are sitting here right now, have invested a huge part of your lives in this church. Folks, we need to care about this church and its future. Not just for us. You know who we need to really care about is those kids sitting out here right now and those who are downstairs. We need to be concerned about the heritage and the legacy that we are going to leave for them in the future. Let's resolve together. Let's resolve together that no matter what, We are going to keep looking to Jesus, the living word, and we are going to stay tied, bound to the word of God. And the word of God is always, until we die or the Lord takes us home, or the Lord returns, I should say, till we die or the Lord returns, that we are going to believe that the Bible is the word of God and is fully sufficient for all matters of faith and practice and is the authority of this church. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, help us to be the church that you've called us to be in the midst of our own weaknesses and frailty. Help us to care deeply about this church because this church is your church. It belongs to Christ. Oh, Lord, lead us, guide us, now and into the future. For the sake of our Savior and for the glory of God, for we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.